It's a joy again to be here. Thank you for inviting me to come. Uh, I have been richly blessed and trust that you also have been, not because of who the speakers are, but because of Christ Jesus, the Lord himself. Uh, I'm going to try to tie some loose ends together here and bring this all together, if I can, by God's grace. I'd like for you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 for an opening verse uh, or two. I'd like to, with these verses, uh, again clarify what I taught yesterday with the table here with all the things that are there in Christ. It says in Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, and we're looking at, at the things that are given to us. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. According to his divine power, he, Christ Jesus, has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that I need for my, for my Christian life has already been given. Everything I need for life and godliness has been given. As I thought about the things on the table, they're all given for me. But let us be careful that we don't go after things. Let us go after Him. We need Him in our lives. That's what we need. This place is called Camp Penile. And we can read about Camp Penile in the life of Jacob in Genesis. But do I believe in a Camp Penile? Do I believe in a Penile experience? Jacob had met God earlier in his life when he's slept on his way to Laban's house, he saw, in a dream he saw a ladder going up to heaven and the angels coming up and down on that ladder. And he saw the Almighty standing at the top. And when he woke up, he said, this is the house of God. That was his first real experience with God. But Jacob was still Jacob. And for many years, he continued to struggle and to wrestle with his own will his own desires. And that, was, that, is the, that is the picture of the Christian life today. Yes, I have been born again. I have come to Christ. But I am struggling with my own will and my own desires. Is there anyone here like that? 
But you never read about Jacob struggling or wrestling with those things later on afterward. He was absolutely changed at that place. I believe God wants to change me, us, also, in this way. I thought about also how that when God's people draw near to God, they be, their heart begins to beat with the heartbeat of God Himself. And they begin to sense the burdens that are on God's heart. And they begin to pick up the burden of God and begin to walk it out. And when God's people do that, they begin to sense the need for a witness and a preaching of the gospel to all nations, to all peoples. There begins to be a burden for souls that flows out of that relationship with God to where they become burdened for others around them. I appreciate the testimony of the Moravians how they came together seeking God. And God visited them in a very special way. And the outflow of that was to many peoples. Oh, that God would do something like that here today. That's my prayer. I've been assigned to bring a message on my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And so, by God's grace, we'll look at the scriptures in this area. Turn to Isaiah 56 to begin. The quote is taken from this verse where the prophet Isaiah is speaking forth the word of God and he's He's looking at Israel, prophesying about Israel, prophesying about the future. He talks about the Lord bringing people to himself, the eunuchs. He says, even them in verse 5, will I give, will I give in mine house and within my walls, within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the stranger. And this is difficult for Jews today, as it has been back in those days. The Jews thought they were God's special people, and that God's salvation was for them. But over and over again, the prophets continued to proclaim that it was also for the strangers. It was also for the Gentiles. Also the sons of stranger that joined themselves to the Lord, to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and, con and taketh hold of my covenant. Picture this in the New Covenant. Verse 7, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain. He's speaking about the strangers. He's speaking about the people outside of the covenant of Israel. 
I'll bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Isaiah is saying something here, and where does he get this? Is this something new that Isaiah is proclaiming? It is not. Isaiah is simply proclaiming that which Solomon had prayed earlier, in another, in a sense. But let's look at this verse a little closely, a little closer, and take it into the New Testament setting. Even them, he says, will I, God is saying, I will do this. I will bring them to my holy mountain. Now, Jesus said, you shall not worship in Jerusalem, nor in this physical mountain, the physical places, but you shall worship those that worship the Father must worship in truth and in spirit. And so we see the picture here. What is he saying by this holy mountain? I see it as a picture of the church today. This is the place of worship. This is the place that God's people come together. Mount Zion. And uh, Hebrews says, We have not come unto Mount Sinai, but we've come unto Mount Zion. It's that high place. It's that holy place where the people of God gather together to worship and to pray. And what will he do with the strangers? He will make them joyful in his house of prayer. We are Gentiles, brothers and sisters. At least I am. Are any of you born Jew? Israel's? No. We're, that, this is who we are. We're the strangers. Then he goes on to say their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. Is there any place that you see in the scriptures or that you know of that the Gentiles would bring a physical offering, a physical sacrifice and put it on a physical altar and that way be accepted before God? We don't read of that. But this is a picture of what, what the church is to be today. He's simply saying, I will accept those that come with a burnt offering. The burnt offering is a picture of a whole burnt offering. A total, complete yielding of oneself is the picture there. Their sacrifices, their giving of thanks, their praising unto God. Upon mine altar, and where is my altar? You see, the Old Testament, there was one place to worship. One place you could take your offering. One place where you could have the bloodshed. It was at the altar of the Lord. And today we have an altar. And that altar is the cross. Where the blood of the Lamb was shed for you and me. And for every stranger. They shall be accepted upon my altar. God is saying, I am going to accept the sacrifices and the burnt offerings of the strangers upon my altar. You know, strangers were not allowed in the temple. They were not allowed to go there. For mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And the picture there is that God would bring all types of people, all manner of people into his holy mountain and there he would accept their offerings as they bring them on the altar. And my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the clearest picture we see there is that 
that the, that the church is a place of prayer, a place of worship, where all nations can come together under one head, which is Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, I'd like for us to go and look at Second Chronicles and see Solomon's prayer here. If we may do that, Second Chronicles chapter 5. As I have been continuing to study the Word of God over and over again, and as I read God's Word, a different brothers say that they have purpose to read the, read the Bible through each year. I encourage you to do that. If you've never read the Bible through, do it. I remember the first time my wife and I committed ourselves to read God's Word through the whole year. And we did that before we were saved, the year before we got saved. We would sit around the table in the evening, and we got so, I got so intrigued with the stories in the Bible, I had never known they were there. I was ahead of my schedule in reading. It was so intriguing. Of course, there were times when I fell behind. But we did read the Bible through that year of 1986. In the spring of 87, we got saved. I know that. The Word of God. Hallelujah. Praise God. And it came from a challenge by, uh, what's that little book that you used? Daily Bread. The last one of Daily Bread in, in, 80, in 85, it said there, uh, read 66 books in 86. And that was the challenge at the end of 85. My wife got these spiritual little magazines, you know, and had them there on our bedstand, and she was reading those things, and I was off on other things, and I didn't have much interest there. I just, maybe it's a woman thing or something. But she read that to me at the end of 85 and said, why don't we do that? Oh, okay. You see, God was working, and God was beginning to plow my heart, so, I, so we did. We read the Word of God, and the Word of God did its work in our hearts. Praise God. In Second Chronicles here, I want us to see something, and, and what I was saying was, as I go through the Word of God, I begin to see principles that continue to come again and again and again. And we're going to look at one of those principles here this morning. We have here Solomon in chapter 6 of Second Chronicles. He is praying a prayer of dedication to the temple. Dedicating the temple. And it says in verse 32, moreover, after he prays many things about the people of Israel, you can read the chapter, if you do, if you care to, you should read it. Moreover, concerning this stranger which is not of the people Israel, but is come from a far country for thy great name's sake and thy mighty hand and thy stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from the heavens, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee to thee for, that all people of the earth may know thy name and fear thee as doth thy people Israel, and may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Solomon is interceding for the nations. He has a vision of peoples outside. Now I want you to look at the end of chapter 5, of Second Chronicles, I want to I want to bring a pattern out here that I have seen. It's and this uh, chapter five is where the dedication of the uh, is where they 
they dedicated the treasures of the temple and they brought up the Ark of the Covenant and put it into the new temple there. And something happens when they did that. Do you know what it is that happened? Okay, for at any, he, he uh, they had the Levites singing there. They were praising the Lord with singers and so forth, with all the instruments, and they proclaimed that the Lord is good. And in verse 14 it says, verse, four, verse 13, for He is good for His mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. And I want you to see that there is a two-step thing happening here. What is the cloud a picture of? The presence of God. The presence of the Spirit. Now, look at the end of Solomon's prayer in chapter 7. Here in this prayer in chapter 6 is where he has an, they, they bring an offering... They, bring, they have an offering upon the altar there. They've brought a whole burnt offering, may I say, and the offering is upon the altar, but there's no fire there. Now look at the picture we have. The, the glory of God had come down upon the temple so that the priest could not stand to minister therein. But now they're outside there in the front and he has uh, there upon that, the altar, the, the, the brazen altar, they have an offering. And Solomon is kneeling before the Lord and he's crying out to God, interceding for Israel and for nations, that if they would come and pray in this house, that then God would hear. And at the end of his prayer, do you know what happened? The fire of God fell. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house again. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Is this the first time that this happened? Where did it happen before? In the wilderness tabernacle. You can see it very clearly there that when Moses set the tabernacle up, and they moved back from the tabernacle. Then the, the cloud came and moved over upon the tabernacle. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. The tabernacle. Then as you, that is the end of Exodus. And then you, as you go into Leviticus, there you can again see that as they brought the many different kinds of offerings, and each one of those offerings depicted one or more things of Christ, that it took many offerings to somehow show forth the glory of the one true offering, which is Christ. And Christ filled, fulfilled all of those in one offering himself. But as they took these many offerings and brought them there, and they went through these things, and then they came to the end where they laid the, the, the whole burnt offering out there on the altar again, there in the wilderness. The glory of the Lord was there upon the tabernacle. They're now in front of the tabernacle, and there they are at the altar, and they've laid their offerings upon the altar, but there's no fire there. Then it says that the fire came out from the Lord... And it lit the altar and it burned up the sacrifice. So I'm seeing a pattern here. You follow me? I think of the time when David had numbered Israel. And God gave him three choices and he chose 
pestilence and how that the angel of the Lord went through Jerusalem and began to slay. 70,000 people died in those three days. And as the angel of the Lord was moving through Jerusalem with that sword, bringing people's lives to end, it repented the Lord that he had done it. And the angel was there at the threshing floor of Arona, and the angel's hand was stayed. And David and his men, they were on their faces before God. And God gave David a vision of that angel standing there by that threshing floor. And he sent the prophet, which, what was his name? The prophet was sent to David to tell David, go up to the threshing floor and there offer a sacrifice. And David went up there and he bought the threshing floor. He, he bought the oxen and he bought the, he bought the tools, the wooden tools, and there he built an altar before the Lord at a, whole, a brand new place. You see, there was supposed to be one place for an offering. But David had been told now to, to, put an, to, to raise up an altar here and to, to uh, make an offering to God. And God answered with fire. What does that mean? I believe that that means, there's no doubt in my mind, God is saying, I'm accepting your offering. I'm accepting your burnt sacrifice and your offering. When the fire of God fell, it meant that God was pleased and God had accepted that. And from that point forward, David was afraid to go worship at the other place at Gibeah because of the sword of that angel. But he came and he worshipped at this place. And what I see there is God initiated a new worship, in a new sense of worship there. And then that was then the place that the temple was built later on. And in King Solomon, of course, we see what happened there. <clears throat> We're talking about the house of God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. These things are there for our learning. There's lessons to be learned there. Has there been any other place in the Bible where we can see this same pattern being followed? And where would that be? Mount Carmel? We see the fire of God falling there as Elijah reinstated the worship, maybe. Okay? Anywhere else? The day of Pentecost. Okay, so God is, when, when God established the work there in the wilderness, when, when, when Moses established the tabernacle, God did something. He put his stamp of approval on that. Worship, that new way of worshiping him with the fire of heaven. And when they built the temple of Solomon's day, God again put his stamp of approval on that new place to worship, his house. Now when we come to the New Testament, God again is going to do a new thing. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it with fire. Just the same as it does before. See, there's principles that God follows the whole way through. So in the, in the end of the book of John, someone mentioned this scripture before, that Jesus breathed upon his disciples and said, Receive ye the Spirit. They had, I believe, the Spirit of God within them. You see, the cloud is a type of the Spirit, the new birth, I believe. But then there is something more. 
Then you have the Pentecost. This is something new where the church was birthed by the power of God. And God established the church, the body, his house of prayer, may I say, the church, which is the house of prayer. And their God, by the pouring out of the Holy Ghost and the, the testimony, the baptism of fire upon that body, there he established the church, a new way of worship, a new place. Not just a specific location anymore, but this house of worship, this house of prayer is now the individual believer, every single one. And this is the picture that I believe God wants us to understand, is that this physical body where the Spirit of God dwells is a house of prayer, is to be a house of prayer. And what should I be praying about? I like to say it this way, that this house is to be called a house of prayer for what? All nations. And I like this book, Operation World. All nations basically are in here. I can take this book, and I can find the nations in here, and I can pray for them. And God, I believe, wants you and I to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is the application for you and I today as we look at Isaiah. Because the house of prayer is no longer a specific place to pray in, but the house of prayer is enlarged, the body of Christ, but more specifically, the house of prayer is this vessel of clay wherein the Spirit of God has come to dwell, and there God wants you and I to be effectual, fervent in our praying for all nations. And whosoever will may Come and drink of that, and whosoever will may come and experience the fullness of that. And as we draw near to God, as we draw near to the heart of God, we'll sense His burden, and we'll begin to pray for the nations around us. Ask, and I'll give you the nations, He says. What will I do with the responsibility that I see in this passage? I'm so grateful for the way this prayer weekend was put together. I was so encouraged last night as we sat in the, around the campfires there and as brothers exhorted us. And we had this little exercise that we did there about devotional life. What are the things about my devotional life? What are the things that hinder me in my devotional life? And, and we were supposed to talk to one another and then express out loud the things that hinder our devotional lives. And as we walked through that, I, and I was pondering and praying about this message, this house of prayer for all people. And then we come to the New Testament where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem and there he goes down to the temple and he looks around and he says he goes back out and the next day he came back in and what did he do? He saw in the temple the things that distracted the people from worshipping, true worship, from praying specifically. He saw the distractions there. And as I heard us last, I heard the group last night, and I, how very well I know, there are so many distractions that distract us from effectually being demonstrating that house of prayer that God wants us to be. Jesus said, 
As he drove out those money changers, he upset their tables and he sent them all out there, the bird sellers and all those things, the exchangers, and he sent them out there and he said, This, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And I want to say that there is still a den of thieves in many, many hearts today. There are, there's a thief around, and that thief is doing what? He is stealing away from your time with God. He is bringing in distractions into your life, lest you would become effective in the house of prayer for all nations. And these thieves are there. They're sent there by the devil, and they're out there to distract you and to take away your time so that you cannot become effective. What does God really want? What about this house of prayer? This is my... This vessel of clay. How can I give myself fully to God? How can I more fully yield my life to God that He might flow through me and become active in this house of prayer? Why do I allow these thieves to set up a place in my heart and distract? It's because I'm focusing on the visible things around me instead of on the invisible things around me. That's one of the reasons why. <clears throat> I've been teaching and preaching this week on, on the activation of faith. I think many of you have heard that. You've heard my heart how that we need to take the Word of God and mix it, believe it, and then do something with it. And one of my concerns is that you would be here this weekend and go home without being changed. And so my encouragement to each one of you is, would you be willing to take a step of faith today and begin to believe begin to activate faith in some, at least one area that God has been speaking to you about. Now, how is God going to know that you are activating? How is God going to know that you believe? How are you going to benefit from this? I would like to encourage you to in some way demonstrate to God in some way begin to walk it out you know we have what we call altar calls and what is an altar call when an altar call is given the people who respond are demonstrating that they are being moved by God to go do something and many times that is done in the, in the area of repentance and confession, and that's good and that is right. But I would like to open the altar for you today. That you would do something. That you would take a step. That you would get out of your seat, either kneel to pray, or just stand, or respond to the altar demonstrating it that you are exercising faith in any given area that God is speaking to you about. Do something. 
and tell someone, at least one person, what God is doing in your life today or this weekend. This is the steps of faith. If you want to be changed, if you're going to be changed by any, by the power of God this weekend, you are going to need to exercise, do something with what you've been hearing and begin to activate it. Are you willing to demonstrate to God in one way or another? Now I know that you don't need to respond to an altar call to get saved or get I know that. Because it's an action of the heart. But the action of the heart, it takes, all, it takes more than just the action of the heart. It takes, for with the heart man believeth, with the mouth confession is made. And that is how we begin to exercise this issue of faith. I would like to take, read a little bit out of this book. The brother earlier shared about persevering in prayer. This, and he said that prayer is a wrestle. Prayer is a fight. Prayer is a labor. And he said it well. Let me read this to you to help us understand what happens when we endeavor to assault the enemy's front lines in any area. Faith begins by being a labor or a fight, although it's consummated in a rest. Hebrews 4.3 that is to say, the first stage of faith, now listen carefully, I want every one of you to learn to be walking in faith, in prayer. The first stage of faith is always the battle of taking hold by the will, heart, and intelligence of some truth or promise, which is not real to us in experience. And Declaring it to be ours in spite of appearance. Are you with me? Okay, what I'm saying is, the things up here which we had last night, I know they're there, I know they've been given, I know they're for me, but they're not reality in my experience. How am I going to become a partaker? How can I partake in those things to where it becomes a reality in my life experience? I need to take a hold of that truth, of that promise of God's word by faith and begin to claim it and to begin to walk as though it were that which, as it says, God calls that which is not as though it were. And we have the same opportunity. So we're looking at this fight of faith, taking hold by the will, choosing with our will, heart, and our intelligence to take a hold of this truth and to claim it for my own, and declare it to be mine in spite of the appearances. We're not going by feelings. We're going by faith. We're not talking about feelings. We're talking about faith. We do not appear to be dead unto sin. Hmm? And alive unto God. We, but we are told to believe it. And so we dare to do so and declare so. Young men, are you listening? I don't appear to be dead to sin, but the Bible says this is my right. This is my right in Christ. And so I take a hold of that promise and declare it to be, a, to declare it to be in my life. And we're not talking about name and claim it. We're talking about 
taking God's word, I so appreciate Brother Dale's uh, explaining that last night, those four points. It's very different than the name and claim it. This is hearing God's word, looking at God's word, believing God's word, and proclaiming God's word to be mine. And so we assault the enemy a thousand times maybe. Faith may be assaulted and fall. Unbelief will say nonsense. So I, I, I take a step of faith. I step out to lay hold of that promise to claim it as my own and the enemy says, nonsense. Look at you. And I shrink back. Okay? It don't work. I give up. Never. Never. But I press in again. By fight, but the fight and labor of faith means that we deliberately return to the assault again. Once again we believe and declare it. This we persist in doing as we thus follow in the steps of those who by faith and patience inherit the promises. A new divine thing will begin to happen within us. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit will cooperate with our faith as he is invisibly doing all the time. And to faith will be added assurance. Labor and fight will be replaced by rest. The consummation of faith has been reached. What was once an effort to attain or maintain now becomes as natural as breathing. Such is the law of faith, whether exercised in sanctification or in any of the later higher reaches of Christian experience. I read that to encourage each one of you. You want to go home, you want to leave this place with a vision of what God wants to do for your heart, for your life. First of all, the cleansing and all those type of things, the victorious Christian life within. First of all, it, it pertains to me, my life in Christ. I want to be free from sin. And so God has made a way for me to live without sin. And once I come to that place where I, where I have believed to the point of full assurance that I am to be free from sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ my Lord, then is that the highest place for the Christian life? No. That is still at the bottom of the ladder, I may say, because after that, then you become effectual in reaching deeper into the realms of the enemy's territory and begin to deliver the souls who have been taken captive by him at his will. This is then the effectual Christian life. What about my house of prayer? I'm not talking about making a vow. Sometimes people will come to a prayer weekend like this, and they'll make a vow and they say, I vow, I promise to spend half an hour or an hour in quiet time every day. I hope no one has done that. And I hope no one will do that. I can guarantee you one thing. You will not keep the vow. Some of us have tried, right? Why can't I keep that vow? Because it's in the flesh. It's the power of the flesh and you will not be able to do it. But... There is something else that you can do. 
And this is where I believe that God wants us to come to here at Camp Penile. In Romans he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So many times, we, and not just as youth, but especially young people, they find many things that detract them or distract them from their walk with God. And And they have almost to make daily decisions. Am I going to go do this, or am I going to go do this? Am I going to go play volleyball, or am I going to go to the prayer meeting? Am I going to do something that helps me in my spiritual life, or am I going to go do something that is fun and carnal? We face those decisions very, very many times. Am I going to buy that candy bar to satisfy my flesh, or am I going to deny myself that? These are so many daily decisions, and some of them are big decisions that you face over and over again. I'd like to recommend to you a means whereby you can be free from having to decide over and over again. If you would, Present your body a living sacrifice, whole, holy, as they did the burnt offering, where you lay your life on the altar. And when, when you lay your life on that altar, with that sacrifice goes your own will, your own way. And a commitment that says, Lord, my life is for you, holy for you. From henceforth, I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. And you make a decision based on God's word, on God's desire for you. And there you lay that on the altar. You've decided. At that point you decided you will live for Him. And when that decision, when that little thing comes up again, the decision was already made back there. Are you with me? When, I, when I'm faced with the decision either to pray or play volleyball, whatever it may be, you get the picture. That decision has already been made back there on the altar. And that decision on that altar affects my everyday life. It affects my life. Every aspect of it. And I can promise you that if the offering, if you offer yourself a living sacrifice, God is willing. I believe God wants the fire Put the fire down upon that sacrifice and burn out all the dross, 
burn out all the fleshly instincts we have, burn out all the carnality, and begin to use that vessel for his own glory and his own honor. We go into the book of Acts and we see the baptism of the Holy Ghost come down upon the disciples in the the upper room there. We see the baptism of the Holy Ghost coming upon the group in the house of prayer later on. We see it coming upon them there in Cornelius' house. And that is the power of God to live a holy life. That is the power of, that's the endowment of power from on high and every time that that happened in the, in the Bible there, in the New Testament, the results was an outflow of ministry and preaching the Word of God. And this is where we need the power of God. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? Paul would say. God wants a complete sacrifice. God wants every part of my body. God wants me. He wants me. He wants you. Now, what will you do with it? How will you live it out? Not my will, but thy will be done. And Jesus, when the Greeks came to him, came to the disciples, they said, we would see Jesus. What did Jesus say? Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. Except I am willing to let go of all the things that I treasure in life and die, whether it be, Jesus said, except you forsake father and mother houses and wives and lands and children and yea, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. It is because we're so entangled with the visible things that we fail to appropriate the invisible things. Peter and John said, silver and gold have I none, but that which I give to you, that which I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter reached down with his hand and he pulled that, took that man who couldn't walk and lifted him up. And that act of faith brought healing that lame man. I'm going to close with a story of commitment. And no, not every one of us is going to be called to be a missionary. But every one of us is called to be a living sacrifice. Most of us would like to have sacrificed one time. It's not hard to give my, my life one time. But when you talk about putting me on that fire, on that altar, to be a living sacrifice every day. And the picture there is Paul says, I die daily. I'm a, and in, in Second Corinthians it says uh, that the light, it says that... Uh, let me turn there. A little bit on the what I said yesterday about death. Our biggest gun, our my supreme 
Satan's supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Am I willing to give my life? Am, am I at the place where I'm willing to lay myself on that altar and say, Lord, I don't care however you'll be glorified, whether it be by life or by death, whether it means separation from my friends, my family, whatever it may be, Lord, here I am. That's the type of offering. When that comes from the heart, God will accept that offering. He says, I will accept them upon mine altar. And it's on the basis of Christ. But he says here that we are always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why? That the life of also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. And again, why? That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. And to the one who will give his life as a living sacrifice, he will become a spectacle. He will become something that God will be able to use for his glory and his kingdom. Because you will, you will carry in your body, you will carry it through by your life, you will demonstrate a dying in Christ. The death of Christ. Now I'd like to share a story here. I forget what time I started. Of unforeseen fruit. This is a story out of the Herald of His Coming that I read and I've been so moved by it. I've used it numerous times in the message. I'm going to read this story. It is by Jim Simbala in a book that he wrote recently. A story of missionaries. And I read this so that peradventure God will draw our hearts closer to Him. Who knows what God will do with a group of young people like this. Anyone, anyone here who will fully yield himself to be a living sacrifice, God will begin to use you. God will begin to purify you. God will begin to, to work in your heart and life in a whole new way. You wonder why you struggle with sin. You wonder why you're so powerless. You wonder why can't I live a victorious Christian life. I tell you, it's all there. Be it according to your faith. But I'm saying begin to do something with what you've heard. If God is speaking to you this weekend, somehow demonstrate to God your faith. I think of, there's so many different ways that we can demonstrate that to God. I think of the Hutterites back out in Montana, back in early 19, uh, late 80s maybe, or with the Flatwiller Colony where the, the, uh, the, uh, the Mennonites came in and held preaching, a week of preaching in the nearby town. These wild, Hutterite young people went to these meetings to hear the preaching of the Word of God. They were wild young people, very unruly, very, very worldly. And there, night after night, they heard the Word of God. And according to, that, according to these Mennonites there, if you wanted to be saved, you would stand in the congregation. And one night, about the sixth night, one or two of those young people stood with all their friends around them. They stood. And by that standing, 
they demonstrated to God their commitment to follow Christ. You see, they, they believed the word. And they stood. They did something. They activated that thing. And they, 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 they proclaimed it by standing. The next night, the word of God again came. And there the invitation was given. If you want to follow Christ, stand up to show that you're willing. And by the time that weekend was done, they had almost all stood, about 18 of them, and had just stood. And and the testimony was, when I finally got the courage to stand, I was washed. You see, it's because the heart had made a choice and believed. And by standing, they confessed. And made a proclamation. Here I am, Lord. Back in 1921, a missionary couple named David and Svea Flood went with their two-year-old son from Sweden to the heart of Africa to what was then called the Belgian Congo. They met up with yet another Scandinavian couple, the Ericssons, and four of them sought God for direction. In those days of much tenderness and devotion and sacrifice, they felt led of the Lord to set out from the main mission station in Congo and take the gospel to a remote area. This was a huge step of faith. At the village of Delado, they were rebuffed by the chief, who would not let them enter his town for fear of alienating the local gods. The two couples opted to go half a mile up the slope and build their own mud huts. They prayed for a spiritual breakthrough, but there was none. The only contact with the villagers was a young boy who was allowed to sell them chickens and eggs twice a week. Svea Flood, a tiny woman of four feet eight inches tall, decided that if this is the only African she could talk to, she would try to lead the boy to Jesus. David and Svea Flood. And in fact, she succeeded. But there were no other encouragements. Meanwhile, malaria continued to strike one member of the little band after another. In time, the Ericsons decided they had had enough suffering and left to return to the central mission station. David and Svea Flood remained near Delato to go on alone. Then of all things, Svea found herself to be with child in the middle of the primitive wilderness. When the time came for her to give birth, the village chief softened enough to allow a midwife to help her. A little girl was born whom they named Ina. The delivery, however, was exhausting, and Svea Flood was already weak with bouts of malaria. The birth process was a heavy blow to her stamina. She lasted only another 17 days. Inside David Flood, something snapped in that moment. He dug a crude grave buried his 27-year-old wife, and then took his children back down the mountain to the mission station. Giving his newborn daughter to the Ericsons, he snarled, I'm going back to Sweden. I've lost my wife, and I obviously can't take care of this baby. God has ruined my life. And with that, he headed for the port, rejecting not only his calling, but God himself.
Within eight months, both the Ericsons were stricken with a disease and died within days of each other. The baby was then turned over to some American missionaries who adjusted her Swedish name to Aggie and eventually brought her to the United States at the age of three. The family loved this little girl and were afraid that if they tried to return to Africa, some legal obstacle might separate her from them. So they decided to stay in their home country and switch from missionary work to pastoral ministry. And that is how Aggie grew up in South Dakota. As a young woman, she attended North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. There she met and married a young man named Dewey Hurst. Years passed. The Hursts enjoyed a fruitful ministry. Aggie gave birth first to a daughter, then a son. In time, her husband became president of a Christian college in the Seattle area. And Aggie was intrigued to find so many Scandinavian heritage there. Remember, she was from Sweden. One day, a Swedish religious magazine appeared in her mailbox. She had no idea who had sent it, and of course she couldn't read the words. But as she turned the pages, all of a sudden a photo stopped her cold. There, in a primitive setting, was a grave with a white cross, and on the cross were the words, See a flood. Her mother. She jumped into her car and went straight for a college member who she knew could translate the article. What does this say, she demanded. The instructor summarized the story. It's about missionaries who had come to Delada long ago, the birth of a white baby, the death of the young mother, and the one little African boy who had been led to Christ. And how, after the whites had all left, the boy had grown up and finally persuaded the chief to let him build a school in the village. The article said that gradually he won all his students to Christ. The children then led their parents to Christ. Even the chief had become a Christian. Today there were 600 Christian believers in that one village. All because of the sacrifice of David and Svea Flood. Am I willing to be a living sacrifice? For the Hearst 25th wedding anniversary, the college presented them with a gift of a vacation to Sweden. There Aggie sought to find her real father. An old man now, David Flood, had remarried, fathered four more children, and generally dissipated his life with alcohol. And recently he had suffered a stroke. Still bitter, he had one rule in his home. Never mention the name of God. Because God took everything from me. After an emotional reunion with her half-brothers and sisters, Aggie brought up the subject of seeing her father. The others hesitated. You can talk to him, they replied, even though he's very ill now. But you need to know that whenever he hears the name of God, he flies into a rage. Aggie was not to be deterred. She walked into the squalid apartment with liquor bottles everywhere and approached the 73-year-old man lying in a rumpled bed. Papa, she said. He turned and began to cry. Aina, I never meant to give you away. 
It's all right, Papa, she said, taking him gently in her arms. God took care of me. The man instantly stiffened. The tears stopped. He turned his face back to the wall. God forgot all of us. Our lives have been like this because of him. Aggie stroked his face and then continued. Undaunted, she said, Papa, I've got a little story to tell you. It's a true one. You didn't go to Africa in vain. Mama did not die in vain. The little boy that you won to the Lord grew up to win that whole village to Christ. The one seed you planted just kept growing and growing. And today there are 600 African people serving the Lord because you were faithful to the call of God in your life. Papa, Jesus loves you. He has never hated you. The old man turned back to look into his daughter's eyes. His body began to relax. He began to talk. And by the end of the afternoon, he had come back to the God he had resented for so many decades. Over the next few days, father and daughter enjoyed warm reunion together. Aggie and her husband soon had to return to America. And within a few weeks, David Flood had passed on to eternity. A few, few years later, the Hearst were attending a high-level evangelism conference in London, England, when a report was given by a national from Zaire, the former Belgian Congo. He was the superintendent of the national church representing some 110,000 baptized believers. He spoke eloquently of the gospel's spread in his area and in his nation. Aggie could not help going to ask him afterwards, Have you ever heard of David and Svea Flood? Yes, madam, the man replied in French, his words then being translated to English. It was Svea Flood who led me to Jesus Christ. I was the boy who brought food to your parents before you were born. In fact, to this day, your mother's grave and her memory are honored by all of us. He embraced in a long, sobbing hug. hug. Then he continued, You must come to Africa to see, because your mother is the most famous person in our history. And in time, that's exactly what they did. They, they were welcomed by a cheering throng of villagers. She even met the man who had been hired by her father many years before to carry her back down the mountain in a hammock cradle. The most dramatic moment, of course, was when the pastor escorted Aggie to see her mother's white cross for herself. She knelt in the soil to pray and give thanks. Later that day in the church, the pastor read from John 12:24. I tell you the truth. 